I see uh, Victoria has come up uh, along with our guest, uh, Alexander Drick, uh, for the uh, Center of Civil Liberties in Ukraine. Um, so very warm welcome to you both. Good evening. Uh, um, thank you for having me. Good evening, Alexander. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually um, um, from Kiev. I mean, I'm in Kiev now, so it's uh, already evening in Kiev. So I, I was almost about to say good evening, and then I realized that many of you probably have uh, um, are still at the first uh, cup of coffee in the morning. <laughs> uh, if I look outside the window, or if Tim does, we both look uh, across the skies of Tallinn, so we're in the same time zone. So in any event, a very good evening to you, and we're very glad to have you with us. Uh, we've heard a lot of good things about you and uh, what your centre has been doing in recent history, uh, but we also know that you are focused at the moment on very odious topics uh, which we need to bring to light, including the filtration camps. And uh, I don't know how to open things normally other than with a bit of levity or very, very focused on what really is at hand at this time during war and looking at what the Russian occupation forces are doing. Maybe we should start with a harsh image of what uh, in the temporary occupied territories, Ukrainian civilians have to tolerate and abide by and live through. Can you talk to us about what uh, what you have found out and uh, what you're currently advocating? Mm, yes, yes, of course. Um, well, first of all, I thank you for bringing this topic up. Uh, this is extremely important. And I, I do believe that not um, a lot of information is there available about uh, all these uh, horrific crimes that are being committed by the Russian army in Ukraine. And since uh, the Center for Civil Liberties uh, and the um, initiative called Tribunal for Putin that uh, the organization has co-established does exactly that, documents crimes committed by the Russian army in Ukraine, um, I can actually tell you a lot about all these different types of crimes. We currently have a database um, that uh, consists of over 21,000 crimes. These are all potential international crimes. And obviously, uh, all these uh, are taking place uh, on the entire territory of Ukraine. Uh, but major atrocities uh, like tortures, killings, deportations, filtrations, they do indeed take place uh, on the occupied territories. Um, I, I would just probably start by saying that the majority of these crimes that we have been uh, documenting since the February, the full-scale invasion, um, would probably be the direct attacks on the civilian infrastructure, and uh, use of those weapons that cause superfluous injury, like cluster munition, um, and injuries and deaths caused by shellings. And these are the exactly types of crimes that we have been documenting during the last couple of weeks um, because of this <clears throat> extensive shellings that um, have been taking places uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and um, uh, willful killings, tortures, kidnapping of civilians, uh, all these are uh, crimes uh, that, are, that actually have patterns, meaning that since the uh, Center for Civil Liberties has been documenting these crimes ever since 2014, the first invasion uh, of Russia and Ukraine, what we can say is that they have been just scaled up to the entire uh, territory of Ukraine and especially those recently occupied territories. Uh, 
So when we talk about filtration, it's important to understand that this is considered to be a part of the so-called deportation. What deportation essentially is, is forcible displacement of people from occupied territories to the territory of Russia. And uh, nobody can give you an exact figure of how many people have been deported to Russia so far, but the estimation is someone, somewhere between one and two million. So you can imagine uh, this is the population of uh, um, um, some European countries. So basically, all these people that go through the deportation uh, process, uh, they are obliged to go through the so-called filtration. Now, what this filtration is, uh, is an absolutely inhumane uh, procedure uh, when uh, people would go, would require to go through uh, certain stages. First, uh, they will be, for instance, asked uh, to uh, undress. Uh, they will be interrogated. Uh, they will be, their, their phones uh, and their private property well, phones in particular, because these might contain information that might, as they say, as Russians say, um, prove the link, uh, prove that uh, these Ukrainians are Nazis. Um, like, for instance, they would search for patriotic messages on social media or um, bank transfers uh, in support of the Ukrainian army. And if they find any of those, these people might end up in so-called filtration camps. Now, many people, when they go through the process of filtration, get uh, uh, tortured. And the stories that we have been collecting from the survivors, people who went through this procedure, ended up uh, somewhere in Russia and then managed to escape, uh, they would testify and they would provide these uh, horrific details of uh, how uh, they will be, would be physically and psychologically pressured um uh how they would um face uh, like for instance um some damages to their bodies uh how they will be uh, interrogated uh, asked questions how what do you think about the russian authorities what do you think about nazis battalions in ukraine what do you think about ukrainian government have you participated in the revolution of dignity and so on so uh, again if they don't like any of those answers uh, these civilians, regular Ukrainian civilians, would end up in filtration camps. Now, what these filtration camps are, uh, it's it's basically a, a place of legal detention of civilians where they would, again, uh, be tortured um, and kept uh, without a clear reason. Uh, it's worth mentioning that according to the Geneva Convention, uh, basically according to the international humanitarian law, uh, Russia cannot... Uh, keep civilians, uh, meaning these civilians are being kept illegally. And um, based on the information that we are receiving, uh, in particular from the um, recent satellite images uh, published from credible sources, we can say, uh, we can see uh, the mass graves uh, located close to these filtration camps, which means that people might be tortured to death or just simply killed. Uh, how Russians explain this process of so-called filtration, this is how they the, uh, differentiate between uh, uh, Ukrainians, uh, like regular citizens, and, uh, and Nazis. So basically, uh, 
oldest people and the estimation is about uh, is somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000 that are currently um, might be staying in those flotation camps uh, are being kept uh, um, illegally uh, by Russian military uh, because they might be considered Nazis. So this is how, how this is explained. And, and those people who pass through filtration and then end up somewhere in Russia, they might be brought to absolutely different uh, parts of, uh, of Russia. And if, for instance, uh, they uh, give up their Ukrainian passport, and that's something that they are asked during the, filtra during the filtration uh, process, it means that they get stuck somewhere in Russia without even the possibility to leave. Uh, those people that uh, we call survivors, those people who went through this process uh, but kept their Ukrainian passports and managed to escape mostly to European countries, they would, uh, uh, they would say that it's practically impossible to leave uh, Russia uh, if you don't have any ID documents because it's very difficult to get those documents replaced uh, when you end up in Russia. So uh, this is broad, a broad picture of the, of the filtration process. Uh, but since many of these people are staying in the occupied territories, it's uh, cl well, clearly, uh, even though we might have sources uh, on these territories, um, since Russia is not letting any international organizations or governments of other states uh, to get access uh, to these uh, places of illegal, of, de of illegal detention of the Ukrainians, um, it's uh, uh, very hard to say uh, how many people are actually suffering at the moment. As I said, the estimation is somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000. And the problem is that Russia has been twisting uh, and disregarding all the provisions of the international humanitarian law. Uh, and uh, all these people not only were facing uh, tortures, but in many cases, they uh, would not even be provided some basic conditions, uh, like for instance, access to toilet, access to medical care, access to proper food and water. So this has become um, really something that I would say is a, um, is a process of uh, uh, humiliating Ukrainians for, for just and torturing, for just being Ukrainians. Um, and indeed, this is a part of, uh, uh, of what uh, we believe to be a well-prepared uh, campaign against Ukrainians um, um, because many of uh, of of things that are currently taking place on the occupied ter territories have been taking place on the territories of the occupied Luhansk, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk regions uh, in previous years. And it was just scaled up and the Ukraine and Russia has been preparing for this. Um, so it was an intentional uh, decision uh, to make sure that Ukrainians suffer as much as possible because terrorizing Ukrainian civili civilians is basically a mean of uh, warfare. 
uh, and Russia is this is how Russia is fighting Ukraine by terrorizing civilians. And you can see exactly the same with other crimes that are being committed by Russia, um, because if you uh, if you analyze uh, the patterns of behavior, how Russia now is attacking, for instance, the the civilian infrastructure, uh, you will see that uh, the recent attacks, for instance, have been directed uh, um, towards the um, energy supply system, uh, which basically serves the only purpose to make it as unbearable as possible for the Ukrainian civilians to continue their resistance. And it, it happens because Russia cannot win on the battlefield. And it's, mm. uh, it's, it's a very clear uh, for us staying in Ukraine at the moment. And we try to make it as clear as possible to the audience abroad so that people in other countries understand um, that this is specifically targeted against Ukrainian civilians, which Russia wants mm. to cease to exist. And it's, it is not the first time. I mean, this follows in the footsteps of, uh, um, well, in most recent generations, in the run-up to, to the Holodomor, you will find lots of documentation, which fortunately um, have gained public attention in the West as well, finally, um, that the systematic suppression, eradication of the Ukrainian population and its culture is a key target for the, in this case, Russian Federation, previously the Soviet Russian dominated empire, prior to that, the Russian uh, Tsarist empire. It's always the same. The suppression is always the same. And the systematic nature of this shouldn't surprise anyone, but it seemingly still does. Can you just talk a little bit about what we know already about how well prepared these systems are? Because these filtration camps came very well planned and compared to the strange and sometimes rather arcane and massively unsuitable logistics of the Russian armed forces for filtration camps and torture, they are still quite capable. Can you talk a bit about the systems they employed? Well, as I said, obviously we can get, we, we try to use every source of information there is, but uh, uh, if you have seen the filtration camp, there are high chances that you uh, will not be able to tell about that anyone because you might be dead. So uh, for the information that we are getting, um, what we can say is that there, are, there is around over two dozens of filtration camps that are located currently on the occupied territories. So people might might spend months uh, in those uh, camps, and uh, uh, in some cases, uh, people might be sent uh, to detention centers uh, to Belarus or Russia. Uh, in some cases, uh, in these detention centers, people might uh, civilians, I mean, might um, stay in the same places uh, with the POWs, uh, and this is uh, often. Uh, the source of information for us of uh, of exactly who is being kept in those detention uh, centers, uh, because Russia would ignore all the requests about particular people being detained in particular places, uh, because they know that this is illegal and that they are violating the provisions of the international humanitarian law. 
so uh, the main fact that these filtration camps have been established uh, very quickly uh, proves that uh, they have been preparing for this and uh, they have been preparing for a large number of Ukrainians to be kept and tortured systematically in those filtration camps. Uh, now, the question that we are asking ourselves, uh, what is, what could be done uh, to stop these uh, atrocities uh, against uh, civilians? And uh, given the fact that Russia has been, as I said, ignoring uh, basically provisions of the international law, not letting any international organizations or representatives of third governments uh, to even visit these places or have access to these people. Did you uh, receive? Did you receive, or did you manage to obtain any statement from the International Red Cross, which supposedly was uh, was having access to some of the filtration camps, was in proximity or at the entrance of filtration camps, and which was rumored to have been even part and parcel of setting them up in two occasions. Uh, I have been in contact with the Red Cross, and I have, uh, and I did have the chance uh, to speak to them, uh, and uh, also um, give some details and information about the civilian hostages uh, that we have information about. Uh, what I was surprised to learn is that I asked them directly, "Who do you get? Who do you ask the permission uh, to get to those places from?" And they would say that uh, we would ask the authorities, the, the so-called local authorities, uh, but Russia would obviously be engaged into this process, uh, into granting the permission to access those um, um, <clears throat> those places of detention. Uh, what I know uh, is that um, not all the places of detention uh, have been have had a chance to be visited uh, by by the Red Cross, uh, but they would not provide more more than that information, more than that, unfortunately. Um, so this is uh, this is this is what is, we is have to Is that not highly unusual? Is that not highly unusual? Isn't the Red Cross typically presenting itself as a transparent organization, uh, which would declare to, for example, the government of Ukraine and institutions associated? such as yours, with the government to the extent that you are interchanging information. Isn't it highly unusual that Ukrainian citizens are being deported and then to be visited as what can only be described as uh, a civilian deported person against their will, forced deportations, however you want to call it. I mean, you could literally call them um, prisoners of war uh, just as much. Uh, Albeit that would be a stretch in terms, but still, I mean, they, they are forced there. Is it not completely, utterly bereft of any sense and legality that the International Red Cross would not actually report in full to the Ukrainian government? Well, <clears throat> first of all, um, uh, it's important to say we don't call these civilians prisoners of war because, legally speaking, prisoners of war have to be somehow associated with the military. Which they I know, cannot. I know. Uh, I so know, it's uh, we we keep this distinction very strict. Uh, the we call these people civilian hostages, which are being kept and detained by Russia absolutely illegally, and it's important to remain this distinction. We um, will do so. 
But thank you. Have you had, uh, but is it, is it well, not fair to say that they should, that the International Red Cross has an obligation, both morally and legally, to report to Ukraine as the sovereign nation um, every information, every little bit of information it has? I'm not within the government, so I cannot answer the question whether they report to the government. And I, 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 it's, it's obviously important to uh, underline that I'm, I'm currently with the civil society, so I don't have uh, access to the information of what exactly they report to the government. What I can say is that um, we have... Uh, unfortunately faced a very um, unpleasant, uh, if this is the right word, I would say horrific situations when, for instance, um, the Russian Society of Red Cross, which is an institution uh, not a part of the International Committee of Red Cross, uh, has been actually participating in deportations of Ukrainians to Russia. And uh, um, I underline again that they are not the part of the International Committee of Red Cross, but they are supported by the, uh, uh, well, they are basically remaining the part of the, the Red Cross Society. And uh, they have been uh, participating in uh, deportations of Ukrainians. Uh, and there's even a separate line, if you look into the budget uh, published on their website, there is even a separate line um, that says that they have spent, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 15 million rubles on the tickets, uh, uh, train tickets uh, for Ukrainians to be, sold, to be sent all over Russia. So uh, they don't even hide this information. And uh, this is outrageous. Because this is not uh, what uh, these institutions are supposed to do. And this is not helping Ukrainians. This is just making the situation worse. And it's outrageous that uh, in the present circumstances, we're facing um, uh, this uh, problem of uh, um, basically um, having uh, Ukrainians stocking somewhere uh, in, in Russia without even being able to get a proper assistance. Absolutely clear. Now, we've had guests on our space, uh, a variety, actually various guests on our space, but including two women who managed to escape from Mariupol and had to go through filtration camps, who then, with help of others uh, in Russia, managed to escape and find their way through to Finland. Their stories were quite horrific, and they included what we've also heard described by other sources in the meantime, that um, at the entrance of the filtration camp, men and women, uh, children were separated, elderlies were separated, but men were then segregated and immediately searched as to any kind of indication that they could have been active in combat, in any shape or form, and uh, young men were heavily interviewed, forcibly interviewed, and most often segregated relatively early on, not to be seen thereafter. Can you speak to that? Um, uh, that's uh, exactly the... I started by explaining uh, what this filtration procedure looks like. You just explained it in more details. 
uh, that's uh, exactly the type of the testimonies that we get from the survivors that went through this procedure. Um, as I said, uh, we call we call it interrogations because this is exactly what it is. Uh, and we we know that they, for instance, ask people to get undressed uh, in search for the tattoos, which uh, would, uh, for instance, um, as as they believe for some reason, would prove that they have some affiliation with the, <clears throat> with the Ukrainian army, in particular Azov Battalion. Uh, however, as a, as I explained in providing, uh, uh, in for instance, saying that. Uh, uh, they would search for the phones, uh, they would look for, we had some testimonies, for instance, uh, uh, from a person <clears throat> who was detained simply because um, they found in her phone that she sent some money through the online banking system uh, to support Ukrainian army. And that was the reason to say that she's a Nazi and she should be detained and uh, they even wanted to take her child. Uh, um, but then uh that was a very long story i don't i don't think we need to go into uh, the details uh, of this particular story further but uh, this is exactly what is happening what we don't know is what happens uh, to those people uh who disappear and <clears throat> from the people from those uh, people that we have information about uh we currently uh, know the whereabouts of uh, just a small group of people. While it is uh, very, very difficult uh, to find information about the whereabouts of uh, of the rest. Um, and um, uh, this is exactly why we have been raising this, uh, this question and this issue saying that civilian hostages cannot be uh, kept detained by Russia at all, according to the legislation, uh, to the uh, international humanitarian law in particular. Um, and this, uh, them uh, hiding this information basically proves that they know that this is a, a, a gross violation. Uh, and this is exactly why we currently come to the conclusion that unfortunately, um, there is no other way how to stop these atrocities from continuing uh, other than liberating those territories. And this is exactly why we as human rights defenders have been finding ourselves in the position of advocating for more weapons to Ukraine. This is not something that human rights defenders would normally do. But we do. We always ask whenever we have advocacy trips or advocacy meetings with the uh, representatives of other countries, we would always, <clears throat> I apologize, <clears throat> uh, we would always advocate for uh, more weapons from those countries that uh, either have been uh, providing this to Ukraine uh, or uh, could provide more um, uh, support uh, to Ukraine in these terms, as well as the financial support, as well as the accountability support, support in uh, holding all those responsible for these crimes accountable. In particular, I'm referring to the tribunal. Uh, we are documenting these crimes and we're discussing this not because we want to be historians who document uh, all these episodes, but we, because we want justice to all these victims. And this is exactly why we have been focusing a lot of our attention on, on different instruments of accountability. We work with all 
possible institutions and instruments uh, there is available. We work with national authorities, we work with International Criminal Court, with the European Court of Human Rights, with the Eurojust and Genocide Network, with the UN Commission of Inquiry, with OACE mechanism, like, like Moscow mechanism. It doesn't have to do anything with Moscow, it's just called Moscow mechanism. Um, so basically, we have been trying to utilize all instruments uh, there could possibly be available, but this is not enough. And this is exactly why we were, and we are still in advocating for uh, the establishment of the ad hoc international tribunal. Uh, the government has, has put forward this idea of this tribunal to focus on the, specifically on the crime of aggression, which you have probably heard about. Uh, the reason why they focus specifically on this one, because currently there is no institution in the world that can hold Russian political and military leadership accountable for the crime of aggression. Uh, and the crime of aggression is, is, uh, is slightly, I would say, different from all the other crimes, uh, like the crime, war crimes, crimes against humanity, those very particular actions taken against civilians, because this one doesn't really have victims as such, apart from one big victim, which is Ukraine as a state. So this one is between the states, and it's a, it is probably the easiest way to hold uh, the leadership of Russia accountable for these crimes. While in the case of other crimes, like war crimes and crimes against humanity and possibly genocide, um, uh, you need to collect all this evidence, you need victims, you need testimonies, you need uh, all this due process in order to prove that this certain military, Russian military, is responsible for committing these crimes. However, the difference is uh, that not necessarily you will be able to build this chain of command and to prove that for this particular shelling against uh, drama theater in Mariupol, uh, is Putin responsible himself? This is exactly why we, we, we keep saying that, yes, uh, it is extremely important to have um, uh, the crime of aggression punished. And tribunal seems uh, to uh, right now seems to be uh, the, the most efficient uh, solution for that. Um, but we also stress that uh, we need to deliver justice to all the victims of these crimes. And this is a huge challenge and it will remain a challenge uh, because uh, I probably, I think it, it makes sense to explain a little bit that um, according to the international humanitarian law, the primary responsibility for investigating and adjudicating all those war crimes lies with the national authorities. But there is barely any uh, law enforcement and judiciary system in the world that would be able to handle this amount of crimes on its own. Uh, that's why it's uh, extremely important to make sure that we establish this, uh, what we call the comprehensive system of uh, international accountability. Uh, in order to deliver justice uh, to the victims uh, of these crimes. I'm sorry if I, if I didn't no, go okay. into many details. No, please, I, I thought please. it was important uh, to, 
to kind of give this uh, uh, overview and explain Absolutely. why we're doing what we're doing. Absolutely. I very much appreciate this. Otherwise, I would have already been forced to ask additional questions. But I think you <laughs> laid it out very clearly. And this, uh, what this space also is about, we want to make sure that people can understand the intricacies, the relevant detail, as, uh, which matters a great deal in this case, both the differentiation and terminology, as you quite rightly laid it out, but also uh, the granularity as to what needs to be done, because the it's a monumental process ahead for Ukrainians and uh, their partners in the international community to support the effort of uh, making sure that justice can be brought on to these people who committed those crimes, as well as making sure that in the meantime, we find uh, sufficient support to stop those crimes from being committed. Now, this brings me to the topic. There's a lot of campaigning ongoing at the moment. One of those campaigns is what we actually bring forward here, which we call Free the Leopards. It's just one of the many. We want to make sure that there is sufficient attention to those weapons, which, by the way, the Ukrainian government has demanded now many times over, whether it is Mr. Kuleba, whether it's uh, Reznikov or um, your president himself. They have all asked for main battle tanks to be brought forward. This was long before we were talking about additional air defense systems, which are evidently required. But it seems to be that there is no end in sight for Ukraine asking for specific weapon systems which are not being given. Now, in order to do so, in order to reach more momentum, I think it may be helpful to highlight what happens to those who are most susceptible to uh, such war crimes and which typically goes to everybody's heart and mind and soul very quickly. The children. The children amongst those forcibly deported are currently being given to adoption. They're being lied to by Russian authorities that their parents wouldn't like them anymore. Uh, they, they are even taken away at very young age in order to be you know, fed into the new uh, body politic of Russia. But essentially what is happening to these children who are either separated at the filtration camp or taken right out of the temporarily occupied territories is absolutely atrocious. Can you speak to that? How many children currently, can we say, have been abducted, have been conveyed into Russia? You're very right uh, to say, and this alone uh, already might amount to the genocide crime. Um, and the the fact uh, we we don't know currently if uh, the International Criminal Court has uh, decided or not to take this as a part of the investigation on Ukraine, but we would highly encourage them to do so. Because this alone, as I said, amount to a genocide crime. Uh, what uh, the estimations are is that, um, as I said, uh, out of those up to 2 million people, uh, Ukrainians who have been uh, deported to Russia, uh, the estimation is that around 200,000 are children. And you're absolutely right to say that Russia has adopted this uh, special regulations that eases the process of adopting Ukrainian children. What happens and what might happen to these children is that their names might be changed, their dates of birth might be changed. So uh, making it practically impossible to, uh, for these children to ever come back to Ukraine or for their parents to ever find these children or what happens to these children and uh, there were some uh, cases already reported 
um, their parents might be killed by Russian soldiers and then they might be sent for the adoption to the Russian families. And since these children are very young, very small, they might not even remember their parents. So what we can only imagine what is going to happen to these children in these Russian families. I bet uh, they will try to erase every memory of uh, of these children to be affiliated with uh, Ukraine, uh, which uh, basically equals um, erasing their uh, national identity. Uh, this is exactly why uh, it uh, this one uh, thing at all. Um, uh, moving children um, to Russia under these circumstances uh, can amount to a genocide. Uh, and this, uh, for sure, uh, has been one of the focuses of um, attention of, uh, of the Ukrainian government, while not only communicating about the war, but also uh, trying to build this um, argument uh, toward, towards Russia committing uh, a genocide in Ukraine. Uh, although what we need to always uh, remember is that uh, well, states recognizing are currently recognizing uh, um, Russian actions as genocide in Ukraine politically. It needs to be proven legally. Uh, and this is uh, where the ICC should have stepped in, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, because it's exactly within their jurisdiction. So I, I will underline here that we would expect them to take this case. Uh, however, uh, what they are currently investigating cannot be revealed. I mean, they cannot share uh, this information because this is an, an ongoing investigation. So we don't know if they have taken this decision or not. All right. Now, with all this documentation being collated and these decisions still being in limbo, how many people in your organization are working on this matter? What can we expect and what kind of support would you need? Well, if we talk about documentation, obviously documentation is not um, all that we do, but documentation has been one of the key focuses, uh, not only for the organization, but for the entire initiative, which unites uh, two dozens of uh, organizations working on the ground in every affected uh, region in Ukraine. So what we're currently seeing is that there is around 1,000 new crimes uh, being documented weekly. Um, and uh, the aim is uh, to have all the crimes documented. Uh, however, uh, obviously, even 21,000 of, of crimes already in the database, uh, that's uh, not all crimes, obviously, and more and more of these crimes are taking place daily. So what is um, extremely important um, to continue to document these crimes, but also to see the prospects of these crimes to be prosecuted and adjudicated. Uh, and uh, this is exactly why um, I said we focus a lot on uh, advocacy uh, campaigns, uh, because we're currently advocating um, establishment of these accountability mechanisms um, to hold uh, 
of Russia accountable for these crimes. Uh, and this is taking a lot of effort outside of Ukraine. So I would uh, often spend a lot of time, half of my time, basically, I spent uh, in Kiev and then half of my time um, outside of Kiev working with uh, um, Council of Europe, uh, OACE, uh, UN. Uh, I just came from uh, from a long uh, advocacy trip uh, uh, Strasbourg, uh, then Brussels, then New York, uh, then OEC conference in Warsaw, uh, and I will also uh, continue um, this advocacy trips uh, uh, to these institutions um, uh, later on. But another issue that we were currently looking on uh, is, in fact, and that's something that I learned a lot about uh, when during the UN General Assembly in New York, the recent one that has taken place in September, um, that while generally European countries and uh, North American countries, uh, they do support Ukraine. I mean, there might be differences. Some, some would give more weapons, some would less, some would support the tribunal, some are still considering. Uh, some would give more financial support, some would give less financial support. So uh, we need to continue to work with these countries as well. But something that I noticed is that we really have a, a gap uh, in support with the so-called countries of the global south. Uh, these are African countries, Latin American countries, some Asian countries. And this is where I see um, a big um, gap. Uh, because um, probably Ukraine has not been uh, paying enough attention to developing uh, the diplomatic relationship with these countries uh, before. Uh, and uh, now when we see uh, how important uh, the support of these countries has become, and I'll give you particular examples because it's important not only Mm, with regard to the resolutions uh, adopted in the UN General Assembly. But let's say um, with African countries, Ukraine had um, um, an economic relationship, uh, for instance. Uh, Ukraine has, uh, ha has been exporting uh, crops to these uh, countries. And what we noticed is that while, uh, as you probably remember, while Russia was blocking uh, ships with uh, crops in Ukrainian ports, uh, Russia has simultaneously been trying to replace Ukraine uh, and take the place of Ukraine on those markets, in African markets. So uh, this again proves that all these actions that are being taken by, by Russia, they, um, they are all targeted to trying to uh, destroy the state and the people, I mean, Ukraine and Ukrainians as such, so that they have no, res they uh, had no resources uh, to continue um, to fight. And this is exactly what we saw. And um, establishing this relationship with, the, with these countries in particular uh, also means uh, explaining to them that they are also the victims of the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And this is the argument that I saw is not obvious. Uh, and that was surprising for me. Like, let's say, for instance, 
some of those countries, Latin American countries, uh, African countries that we had a chance to speak to in New York, uh, they, for instance, believe that the food crisis is the consequence of the sanctions imposed on Russia, which is, of course, not true, because the food crisis and food insecurity is the consequence of Russian aggression against Ukraine, as well as the inflation, the energy crisis, the defaults that have been taken place, uh, have already started to take place and are predicted to take place in uh, around 60 countries. And this is a UN prediction. So you can fairly say that all these people who might be freezing, hopefully not, but might be freezing in Europe uh, because of the energy crisis and energy blackmail of Russia, all these people that might be suffering from uh, uh, starving uh, somewhere in Africa, uh, uh, all these people that might be uh, suffering from inflation somewhere in America, uh, or um, defaults that have, uh, I think the first one has taken place in Sri Lanka, uh, but I'm not an economist, will not be um, saying that that was, I think that was the first country. All these people, they are the victims of the Russian ag aggression against Ukraine. And as people are more further away from the battlefield, from the actual battlefield, it might not be obvious, but they are. And this is extremely important that we spread this message now around the globe, a globe, because it's not obvious. And people tend to fall into this Russian propaganda and propaganda, Russian, Russia has been paying and investing a lot of money into distribution of this propaganda in, in the region of so-called Global South in particular. Uh, they might fall into, uh, into this propaganda and uh, even base their decisions on that, which is uh, um, absolutely unacceptable in the present circumstances. This is why we have been putting, coming back to what we are doing, while documenting all these crimes. And there are hundreds of people that are working around Ukraine now to document these crimes. We're also um, putting a lot of effort into uh, advocating, uh, explaining, and countering these Russian narratives uh, all over the world. Because if the world does not stop Russia in Ukraine right now, there will be other countries that will follow. And people all over the world need to understand that they all suffer, they are all victims of the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And this is something that we have uh, been currently paying a lot of attention to as well. Absolutely. And what you said about uh, the um, say misalignment, the perception crisis, I would call it, that's a matter of, in this case, people look at the symptom and not the origin, not the disease. Exactly. Yes. So we need to explain what what is uh, the origin of the disease and make sure that we stop this disease from spreading. Absolutely. If you allow me, Alexandra, we have questions from our panel. And Victoria, yes. who I think you already Please. know, has a hand up, so let's mm -hmm. go to her. Thank you, Axel. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. It is our privilege to have you on our space. My pleasure. My pleasure. I, I have a question. So, as you said, we often do not hear from those who did not pass filtration camps, and so there was a product to Russia. 
do you think there's a possibility that human trafficking may occur, like involving using force and coercion to obtain some labor or maybe commercial sex acts? Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, there are actually, uh, I think, some um, some analysis being prepared or uh, it's not something that we're focused on particularly, but indeed, uh, people who are subject to deportations are often uh, subject uh, to human trafficking. And uh, it also is linked uh, um, to the... Um, different sexual abuses that might take place. Uh, and this is one of the issues uh, that we don't extensively cover, but which uh, indeed uh, does have a place uh, uh, within this process. The problem is there, however, is that we don't have access to this territory. It's very difficult. We don't have access uh, neither to the occupied territories, neither uh, nor to the territory of Russia itself. And as you, as you probably know, uh, and I was uh, mentioning this before, that Russia would not even let international organizations in. I, I actually had, uh, I spoke to the Undersecretary General um, on sexual violence, Pramila Patin, when in New York, and uh, she told me that she was invited to the occupied territories uh, to uh, to see for for herself. Uh, I, we didn't have a chance to follow up after that, so I don't know if this uh, has already taken place. Uh, but it seemed to me that she's very much aware of the fact that Russia will probably try to use her presence there um, um, to justify and to say that see everything is okay, and that she she understands uh, that she m might not even get access to everything that she's supposed to get access to uh, while visiting uh, these occupied territories. But but again, I don't I I didn't have a chance to follow uh, after that with her, so I don't know if this uh, trip has taken place. Uh, but this is one of the rare cases when uh, representatives of international organizations are actually uh, allowed uh, to the occupied territories to, to see and investigate uh, um, the situation on the ground. Um, as you might probably know, uh, with Elenivka, for instance, uh, this detention center, uh, there is still this problem of uh, international organizations uh, not um, having access um, and not being able to do uh, their investigation. So uh, this remains a big uh, problem. And I think this is exactly what international organizations should be uh, doing and focused on doing. Um, however, it's there is little or no success so so far. Yeah, the lack of success of international organizations uh, showcases the frustration which people have had for a long time now already in this regard. Let's move to Prince. The, did I lose audio? I just lost Axel um, as well. I assume he's having audio problems. Um, Prince, I believe he called you. Yeah, he did. Alexandra, I want to thank you so much for coming on this space. Um, I saw you speak at the UN Security Council meeting in early September, 
And when I heard your testimony there, I knew that you had an important message that this space needed to hear. Um, so I really want to thank you for, for uh, taking the time to spend with us today. Um, you have such an important message that is important for all of us to hear, and our reach goes farther than just the people listening at this moment. It will go out on our Spotify account, and people will listen to the replay. And even more than that, people that hear what what you say today will be able to go to their neighbors and their friends and their family and share um, to bring light on on all of the atrocities that are happening. And so I I just I want to thank you first of all for for spending the time with us today because it's it's very important information. It's hard information sometimes to hear, but it's some of the most important information to hear so that we can um, support Ukraine and and bring these atrocities to light um, and and to to help to to hold Russia accountable in the long run. Um, the question that I, I came up with uh, while while listening here was was when Axel brought up the two women who joined us um, from Mariupol who went through multiple filtration camps before going to Russia and then being able to get out of Russia to Finland. Um, one of the things that they mentioned was that they went through multiple filtration camps as they got closer to Russia and that they said sometimes the documentation was was on paper and sometimes the documentation that the Russians took was on computer. Um, I don't know if you have testimony of that happening with other people, um, but I'm I'm hoping. I mean, I know computer files and paper files can be destroyed very quickly, but is there any hope that that kind of documentation, in the long run, may be able to help to find some of these people who are civilian hostages in Russia, in Russia and to hold Russians accountable for these crimes? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much um, uh, for inviting me today because I think it's extremely important uh, to spread this information. Uh, it seems like there is a lot of information on Ukraine, but when you think of all this information, it's uh, often uh, lacking the connection between the dots so that you understand uh, what that this is a very well-planned system and this is a systematic uh, attack, uh, not only on the state, but on the entire nation and which affects the entire world. So understanding this, and this is the message that I'm trying uh, to spread and and. This is why I'm extremely grateful uh, that, uh, for, in the, for the invitation to participate today and to speak to you. Um, while we are working on uh, collecting this information, with regard to your question, while we are working on, on, on co trying to identify the whereabouts of the civilian hostages, um, um, I would say that currently we have over six hundred uh, uh, cases and these are mostly uh, coming from relatives of the people who were either uh, kidnapped or disappeared 
or who um, just disappear during the filtration process, for instance, when families are getting separated. So we try to follow and we get, as I said, mostly we get this information from the relatives of these people. Uh, but this is not all, obviously. And uh, um, I don't know if the information that is being kept on paper or in computer we will be able to ever access. But I know that we're trying to do our best uh, to make sure that every single bit of information that we receive from different sources is being carefully um, documented and, and we have it uh, added to our database so that nothing nothing gets lost. And while uh, working um, on trying to help the families of the civilian hostages to either locate their relatives or help them or get legal assistance to them. We're also very much uh, interested, obviously, in getting these people back to Ukraine alive. And some of those uh, civilian hostages actually get back to Ukraine, got back to Ukraine recently during the recent exchanges. And the reason why they uh, were returned, um, I hope, uh, is because we were attracting a lot of attention to these cases, uh, and including on the international level. We would of, often bring um, their relatives uh, to different um, conferences and uh, official meetings of international organizations that uh, have been taking place during the um, last month. Um, and uh, this uh, has been helpful in, uh, in many instances because this is how uh, both uh, uh, the Ukrainian government and the international community knows that the, these people are being illegally detained. What we have noticed, although, is that uh, talking about particular names, like naming particular people, um, and it, uh, I would say it is less... Um, um, related to the civilian hostages, uh, it, it is less the case of the civilian hostages, but uh, more the case of the POWs, because we also work with the relatives of the POWs. Um, if we attract too much attention to particular names of particular POWs, Russia, it, it raises the price of these people. So Russia would ask not just uh, one uh, uh, Russian POW for an exchange, but three for just one person, one Ukrainian person. So we're trying to coordinate our efforts um, with the, the national authorities and make sure that if there are some particular plans uh, for exchanges, uh, that we don't do anything that might um, affect uh, the effectiveness of this exchange. So we are trying to be as careful as possible while continuing to collect as much information as possible and share this information with respective authorities so, uh, so that we can uh, get uh, as much civilian hostages and POWs back to Ukraine alive as possible. Axel, is that okay? Absolutely. No, no, very much appreciated. And thank you. I just had a little glitch on the phone before and had to swap the, 
headset out. It came right in the moment when I wanted to hand over to you anyway. So much appreciated. Thank you. Alexander, uh, one more question which has come up more and more in recent weeks is that uh, the displacement of people is one thing, but coinciding with this is also the robbing of their houses, the complete eradication of uh, civil society's estate, quite literally, be it libraries, be it the destruction of uh, cultural, um, say, monuments, um, artifacts and the likes, which all goes hand in hand. In recent days, the evacuation orders, so-called evacuation orders in Khazan, have coincided with the destruction of a lot of um, museums just as well. It is still a cultural genocide and not, uh, not anything else. How do we make sure that Ukrainian society can recover from that? How can we help? This is a this is a very good question. Well, obviously, uh, you're probably aware of the different initiatives of the government that has already started to uh, uh, collect support uh, of uh, other governments um, and international organizations uh, for for the recovery of Ukraine after we win this war. And uh, this is indeed a good way to support um, the recovery afterwards. Uh, what I would say is extremely important is to always remember that while we do need to, to think about what we're going to do and how we're going to recover after after the war, we still haven't won this war. So it is still ongoing and it's very severe, very severe. And it's, and it's very hard. I mean, it's hard, not only for, for, for the military, which has been, uh, um, as, as brave as, uh, as one can possibly imagine and as efficient, uh, as many would not even imagine, to be honest, but it's still ongoing. So, we need to make sure that we don't substitute these things um, because I, I, I'm afraid that some countries might fall into this illusion that if, let's say, we designate some some funds, some resources for the recovery of Ukraine after the war, it doesn't mean that we need to support Ukraine now when it is fighting uh, this war. Uh, I would say, uh, while it is important to remember about the recovery, it is even more important now to focus on winning this war, because we are there is a it's it's a there is a very hard winter ahead of us, and Russia attacking uh, energy infrastructure in in Ukraine now um, is a very carefully planned activity, so. Uh, we need to understand that it's going to be cold, it's going to be um, dark, and it's going to be um, very pricey for Ukraine. Uh, so what, what I'm trying to say, I hope I, I'm not, I, I always want to make it, you know, not, not to sound um, like as if um, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm, try I'm not trying to say that thinking about the recovery is important. It is. But if we're not winning this war, there will be no recovery. 
So it's important to, to, to do things step by step. Uh, right now, Ukraine is experiencing, uh, according to the economists, 30% drop uh, of the economy. Another year of war will bring another 30%, which makes it 60%. Uh, the deficit is already huge, the, de the budget deficit. So having financial support from the states to continue to fight might be even more important at this point than having this money for the recovery. So um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to make this... Uh, very clear not to undermine the uh, the importance of uh, thinking about the recovery. Right now, we need to think about how we're going to survive through this winter and how we're going to win this war eventually. I'm pretty sure that, uh, and um, um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I know we have the capacity for winning this war. But it doesn't mean uh, that everybody can relax now. And the mere fact that we are now facing these challenges of, as you probably know, uh, the Parisian nuclear power plant, I don't think that uh, everybody understands that Russia doesn't really need to use nuclear weapons uh, to cause a nuclear explosion. The mere fact that there are troops located in the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, uh, inside of the nuclear power plant, can already cause a nuclear explosion. I don't think that people understand that. Zaporizhia is one of the regions that have been occupied and then recently annexed by Russia through this sham referenda. Uh, so the, the problem is still there. We still need a, a, a lot of financial support to support the economy. We need uh, the uh, we need weapons to continue to fight because we need to get offensive in this. And uh, I think Ukraine has proved, and Ukrainian army has proved with the recent advances in Kharkiv region uh, that they're very much capable of doing that and doing that successfully. Uh, but it doesn't mean um, that everybody can relax now and and just wait until um until the, this victory comes on its own it's going to be very very difficult so whatever financial support can be provided should be provided to ukraine now uh support in terms of weapons should be provided to ukraine now um uh, support uh, in, in terms of um all possible available tools for accountability is important. This is also, it's not only, accountability is not only a matter of holding them accountable sometime, just this is a very long process. It's about having a preventative effect now, because if they understand that uh, this accountability is inevitable, it will also have a preventive effect uh, um, on uh, on continuing this war, imposing sanctions, uh, another important aspect, but just for your understanding, Russian economy has fallen only by 10%. With all the sanctions, Russian economy has fallen only by 10%. So, obviously, 
uh, it is still not enough. So, um, as I said, financial support, sanctions, uh, weapons, um, accountability, these are the issues of uh, the huge importance at the moment. One way uh, how we, when we are thinking about the recovery and the future recovery, we very much count on the reparations. Uh, we believe that we can get the frozen assets, the Russian frozen assets, and there have been some initiatives already um, uh, for by by national governments, uh, in particular the Canadian government, uh, uh, to implement, introduce, and then implement legislation that would allow to transfer these frozen assets uh, from these countries to Ukraine. Uh, and this is one of the ways how we see the reparations uh, uh, getting basically the reparations uh, from Russia, because it's highly unlikely that Russia itself will be willing to pay any reparations. Another one is uh, um, uh, appeals that Ukraine is sending to international courts, in particular the International Court of Justice, the UN court. Um, and one of the issues that will be considered there is... Um, and that's one of the claims, Ukrainian claims, is that uh, Russia compensates, uh, um, pays these reparations. Another one is uh, compensations, uh, and this is something that be, is being currently discussed uh, on the level of the UN, as well as Council of Europe, um, is uh, compensation mechanisms that can be introduced uh, on the international level, uh, including the registry of the damage. Uh, which uh, is is being basically now discussed, whether it should be a Ukrainian system or international system. Uh, so there is a number of, uh, of of things that are taking place at the same time. But I always emphasize in order to make sure that we have funds uh, for the recovery. And it's important uh, to think about that. Uh, but it's even more important to think how we are going to win this war now. And by say winning, um, I say having Russian troops out, having them accountable and having them um, compensating, uh, paying reparations, compensating all the damage. Thank you for that. Um, we'll have one more question from Prince Heather and then uh, we'll probably wrap it up. Prince. Again, I this has just been absolutely wonderful. I thank you. It's it's a hard topic to say is wonderful. And when Victoria messaged me yesterday saying you were coming on this morning, I was so excited. And it was sort of weird to be so excited to be able to hear <laughs> they're not so pleasant. But having having seen, you know, things on your YouTube page and and the way you presented things to the UN Security Council, I knew you were a very important speaker to hear. And so uh, that's why I was just giddy with excitement. And it just is sort of weird to be giddy with excitement to hear about these kinds of things. But it's true because it's the important kind of thing to hear. And, you know, as 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 we go forward, um, I, I just want you to know, and I, I think Axel and everybody would agree with me, that if you come across something that you you want to share with us to get a message out so that we can help spread that message. Um, I'm sure you're welcome here anytime. 
Um, the one thing that we didn't touch on uh, a whole lot, but just a little bit, is is you do have some expertise in tracking what is happening with happening with the POWs. And mm -hmm. I'm running out of time today. Um, and, and we have talked to some people who have been POWs. Um, and I apologize, I cannot remember his name. He was the priest around Snake Island who was taken POW and then released. And I've heard uh, Tara speak to the Helsinki Commission um, here in the United States, um, the the medic from Mariupol who was who was freed in June. Um, so I I don't know if you can speak just a little bit about what you what you're tracking as far as what's happening with POWs, um, but maybe that would be a time uh, a better topic for another time. So. Again, thank you. And if you have something short you can say about the treatment of POWs, that would be great. I know you have a video on your YouTube channel about it, too. So thank you again. Uh, that was the other subject I was going to bring up. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, again. Uh, I'm extremely happy to uh, not only being able to speak to you today, but also I'm grateful for your interest because, uh, as you said, this is a very hard topic. Not everybody is willing to actually not only listen, but to think about this and even do something about this. This is why I think it's extremely important. Um, uh, you are absolutely right. Uh, with POWs, we do follow, uh, we do work with the families uh, of the POWs. Um, and we do a lot of legal work trying to help them, uh, the families, I mean, to do whatever is needed uh, to ensure that um, uh, the chances, um, to make the chances higher uh, that these uh, POWs end up in an exchange one day. And uh, some of those POWs have already been, have already returned. Uh uh, I would generally say that, and if you saw my video on YouTube, you probably remember that uh, if you open the Geneva Convention, the third Geneva Convention that, that deals specifically with POWs, and you read it article by article, you won't find a single one that has not been violated by Russia, even almost as if Russia has been using this as a manual to ha how to harm POWs as much as possible. Uh, so POWs, and you have probably seen this uh, from the pictures, they have been kept in inhumane position, uh, conditions, they uh, are being constantly tortured, they don't have access uh, to medical care, they don't have access to legal care, they don't, uh, legal assistance, um, uh, they uh, get not uh, only tortured, but uh, they go through these uh, um, absolutely horrific uh, procedures like uh, cutting off their genitals with a paper knife. So this is something that has been shared publicly. So you can imagine what happens to them uh, when they are being kept uh, in these detention centers in Russia uh, or in occupied territories. So uh, from what um from what we know from POWs that come back is that uh, for sure uh, they are being uh, basically tortured all the time. And um, one thing that 
you, however, need to understand about how this entire process is organized is that special services in Ukraine work closely with with POW. So it's not necessarily that they will be able to reveal or, or, or tell all uh, tell you all the information of what has been happening to them. And this is done for a reason, uh, because it might... Uh, uh, um, this information might be used by, again, uh, Ukrainian authorities to conduct some operations, or it might harm other POWs that still remain in the territory of Russia. So this is something important to understand. So um, uh, we, uh, whenever we deal with POWs, my colleagues work in close cooperation with um, um, Ukrainian authorities. Uh, so we're trying to coordinate our efforts and to coordinate uh, our operations uh, so that it becomes as efficient as possible. And I think um, uh, I would not go into much details uh, at this moment. I would really suggest that um, um, if possible, um, you get to listen to uh, some of those POWs uh, uh, yourself, uh, because me telling about uh, telling their stories is not the same as them telling their stories. Would you be inclined to join us when we have one of those who have been freed come here to Maria Report? If I if I can at the, at this uh, moment, uh, yes, for sure. We are currently in the process of planning one or two interviews in this regard, obviously with all uh, suitable respect to the individual, but as you know and well know, both uh, <coughs> foreign um, fighters who signed up with the Ukrainian armed forces as well as Ukrainians themselves have in recent days after having been freed appeared more frequently in public and been interviewed. So we would hope that at a say suitable time in the near future, they can share some of their stories as well as what they would like to tell the international community here on the Maria Report. So I'm sure Victoria and I will be in touch with you and try to coordinate a suitable time for that. One thing has come up in regard to the POWs and that is the fate of the 107 women who have been freed just a few days ago, amongst them also uh, a young mother and medic who'd been separated, obviously, from her four-year-old daughter. The atrocities committed towards POWs are already bad enough for those who have been hardened special forces soldiers, but um, the insidious nature of Russian behavior towards prisoners of war in regard to these women has started to come to light. Can you speak to this? Well, one thing that I can say is that we have been following uh, the cases of some of these women, um, uh, and um, many of them have been detained for a very long time, uh, even before the full-scale invasion. Uh, and um, uh, this is exactly uh, when this is a good example of, uh, of what I uh, what I said um, in the beginning is that. Uh, we see patterns uh, in, in Russia's uh, behavior and Russia's actions 
what they did, they just scaled it to other territories of Ukraine with a full-scale invasion. Um, so, um, I, I, I can't say that, um, um, again, uh, <laughs> we recently had another an interview with uh, one of the survivors, one of uh, those who managed to, um, uh, to, to return home um, during the exchange. It's it's you, you just have to listen to what these people have to say uh, uh, because I might repeat uh, some of, uh, of of their stories, but it's not going to be the same. So what we're trying to do now, we're trying to arrange as many events as possible and as many publications as possible for these people to be able to speak their stories themselves, because this is not only a good way of communicating what this war is actually about, uh, but this is also a very, um, I would say, the most powerful uh, tool at the moment uh, on how to remain uh, the importance of, the, of, of this question uh, on the table. Uh, because what we we have been noticing is uh, some kind of a fatigue of uh, uh, of this war, and uh, uh, this is the worst thing that can happen. Uh, because if uh, uh, if people are getting um, tired uh, of 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 this war, it means. Um, that uh, the possibility of uh, us getting the necessary support uh, to actually win this war um, is in jeopardy. So we're trying to to make uh, it as to remain it as visible as possible. And um, I'm glad that survivors are ready to speak about all these uh, horrific atrocities that they have uh, been through, uh, because this does help a lot Ukraine as a state and Ukrainians as um, 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 as a nation. And uh, I, I do apologize, but I will uh, have to leave <laughs> in, in, okay. in, in just a couple of mo- minutes. So if uh, if there are, I see the hands. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, shall we shall we just cycle through the two questions which are still on the panel uh, quickly? Uh, mindful of your time, Alexandra. So both Ron and Marcus, I understand you have questions. Uh, just give us your questions and maybe we can uh, address them quickly before um, Alexandra has to go. Ron. Good evening. Um, I, I have one question. Um, I'm at the moment uh, in uh, Mykolaiv, uh, as uh, some of the panel know. And a few days ago, we got a guy uh, came from the area of Cherson. Uh, and he came with a Russian passport, but he is Ukrainian. And this uh, seems to get very difficult because it's very difficult for the Ukrainians uh, to uh, to understand. Is he Ukrainian? Is he Russian? Uh, you know, actually, they stole his identity. And I see this as a big problem uh, coming up uh, in the in the contested areas. Uh, how can okay. we define? Uh, uh, how, how how can we do this? I, okay, is how there can a whole we establish time, uh... identities? Is the... hmm? 
how can we establish the true identities of people is the question right yeah you know the the the, the, the man did a, did a smart job he said he was a soldier and surrendered and then you know he was taken by the ukrainian forces and then he explained that he uh, is ukrainian and uh, grew up in the area of kherson and uh, no we found out that uh, that he have some context so we could find out that he really was uh, not uh, uh, Russian. But, well, also in the area of Kherson, there are Russians who live their lives uh, most of the time in, U in uh, Ukraine, and uh, either okay. they have both. So it's it's difficult. Understood. All right, then let's pass this briefly, and we'll go to Alexandra in a second. Let's have a Marcus question, and maybe you can answer them both in a row. Marcus. Thanks, uh, Axel. Um, Alexander, dobre večer. A duže, duže, duže ďakujú for all the Dobre večer, ďakujú. Um, I was over, I'm, I'm one of the volunteers with Maria Aid, and uh, I was over in Ukraine for uh, four and a half months, um, going out there in March. And so, having met with a number of the displaced Ukrainians um, and, and hearing their stories, it is just so vital to capture these things. So, for everybody listening, please understand how extremely important it is the work that Alexander is doing. Um, and, and I'm just going to leave it at that, just to say, duja jakuyu. Thank you, Marcus, once again. And yeah, Alexandra, how do we establish the true identities of those people whose, for example, identities have been stolen, their passports have been taken, they've been forced to adopt the new identity? Uh, well, if they get uh, to the Ukrainian territory, then there are national authorities that should be able to help them with uh, that. Even if they got, uh, if they don't have any other documents uh, at them, it doesn't mean that uh, there are no other ways how this uh, can be done. But again, only if they are on the Ukrainian territory. However, the question that you are raising is extremely uh, difficult uh, indeed, not only because of um, of the issue of identity, of uh, of how to identify that this is a Ukrainian, not Russian, but because many of these people, uh, for instance, are forced to fight for uh, for Russia on the occupied territories, and then the, it raises another question of how to treat them in Ukraine as collaborators or as uh, Ukrainian civilians, uh, sorry, yes, Ukrainian civilians who were forced to, um, uh, to do something against their will. Uh, so there is indeed a big question of what, uh, how to deal with uh, the people who got, um, who are the forced uh, to refuse or refuse their Ukrainian passports. Um, as I said, with the identity, uh, the national authority should be able to help them with that. Uh, but with other issues, uh, it's indeed one of the issues that I don't necessarily have an answer to now, how to deal with that. Uh, but it's one of the questions that uh, we will need to find the answer to. Thank you for that, Alexandra. Much appreciated. And as uh, Mark has always said, it has been an absolute pleasure at last. Thank you for taking so much of your time. And I shall hope that we will have you back soon enough, be it with or without uh, um, the, uh, the privilege of having one of those who have survived and uh, been exchanged as POWs with us. But 
I'm sure we need to have an update on the current situation soon enough. The, the pleasure is mine, and thank you so much for having me today, for inviting me, for uh, listening, asking the questions and commenting. Uh, I, As I said, um, thank you for doing what you are doing to support uh, Ukraine in these extremely difficult circumstances. Um, it's it's very important, and it, it was, again, my, my big pleasure to speak to you today. As I said, the privilege and the pleasure is ours. Thank you, Alexandra. And everybody, please give Alexandra a big hand. Give her a follow. Make sure that the information gets out there and then we shall talk soon again. Thank you very much. Thank you.